0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at EveryWoman'sMarathon.com.
1: I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time, in part of that decade, like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian. Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, new sponsor we got on the show. I'm excited to have them on the program. I'm also excited to have them on my wrist. The sponsor is Skagen. It's a watch company inspired by the people who have become known as the happiest people on Earth, the Danish. Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment, and Skagen's minimalist design reflects that less is more lifestyle. They make uh, they make some nice watches. Some very... Uh, some very handsome watches. Go to Skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N dot Here is the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just uh, one co-host today, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Hi, Max. Uh, before we get to this week's guest, I would just like to acknowledge last week you talked to uh, Jerry Saltz. Art Critic in New York Magazine one of my favorite episodes in a long time. Me too. If you missed that one, go back, listen to it right now. It's incredible. Uh, and in the intro for that one, we mentioned that we hadn't had a lot of critics on and we asked for responses and our inbox was flooded, sir.
2: I actually didn't remember that I had said that in the episode <laughs> and I thought maybe like the National Art Critic Circle had like encouraged <laughs> their members to flash mob us. No, <laughs> we did ask people to email and a lot of them did great suggestions. We're 300 episodes in a lot of the people we originally had thought of to have on the show have been on the show and we want to hear from you, the listeners, who, who you would like to hear and why. Uh, where can people send those, Max? Uh,
1: send us a note to podcast at longform.org. It goes to me and Aaron and Evan. And uh, yeah, let us know who you want to hear on the yeah. show.
2: Well, we will try to reply, but even if we don't, we appreciate it. And we keep a big list. So.
1: Aaron and I are terrible at email. We're, <laughs>
2: we're bad people who don't respond to emails, but we do tape podcasts with the people who are recommended, so it all comes out even in the end. Thank you to all of the listeners. Max, who is on the show this week?
1: This week on the show, Rebecca uh, Rebecca Traister. Rebecca Traister is a writer at New York Magazine. Uh, she's written for several uh, other places.
2: She writes about women in America. Remember when we tried to not have uh, back-to-back shows from the same publication? Yeah, yeah. It, the life gets life gets complicated. Life hits you fast.
1: Well, this was this was the right week uh, to talk to Rebecca. She's got a book out this week, October second, uh, called "Good and Mad," and it's a history of essentially uh, women's anger and how it has sparked social change Um, it is the uh, actual thing behind lots of big historical moments that we don't totally acknowledge were uh, spawned by women's anger Uh, another piece of context for this interview is that we scheduled it weeks ago but uh, it was scheduled for 1130 a.m. on Friday morning September 28th
2: for people listening uh, to this deep in the future uh, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, for the Supreme Court uh, were uh, on Thursday and uh, the vote was scheduled for Friday? Yeah, so when Rebecca and I walked in the studio at 11.30 in the
1: morning on Friday, uh, the assumption at that point was that Kavanaugh was going to be sent out a committee, confirmed over the weekend, and that this deal was done. Rebecca had written a column about it the night before uh, and, and essentially it was like post-mortem time. Uh, and then when we walked out of the studio we were told that Jeff Flake had flipped his position and was demanding a FBI investigation and the story wasn't quite over yet. Uh, So this is like a little time capsule from this uh, brief moment where it seemed like the Kavanaugh thing was done and uh, it felt like a real honor to talk to her and I think we've moment. done we've
2: done follow-ups before when news has intervened but I don't think we've ever had the same day follow-up potential yeah
1: yeah it was uh yeah
2: like 15 minute later epilogue but we didn't do that and um uh, yeah good and mad is the new book uh I've been off the grid this week I was in uh out of the country didn't have a data sim and I was really enjoying reading email newsletters the the slow the slow content of the modern world um Max, if you were starting an email newsletter, where would you do it?
1: I would start it in MailChimp, but um, I'm going to tell
2: you, no one wants an email
1: newsletter from me. I think you should start an email newsletter.
2: Okay, let's um, let's talk about that <laughs> off air. I've got some ideas, um, but it'll definitely, definitely be on MailChimp. We appreciate their support. Here is Max and Rebecca Traister.
1: Hi Rebecca. Hi Max. We were recording this. I don't often uh, 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 divulge this thing, but we were recording it. It's like eleven thirty, mm-hmm. Friday morning, September twenty eighth. It's the day after uh, those marathon hearings. Yeah. Uh, I haven't
0: slept a lot. I'm gonna. The preface for this conversation should be that I have not slept well for the past two nights. So. Who knows what I'm gonna say?
1: <laughs> How does this morning feel to you?
0: Rotten. It feels just like November 9th. Actually. It does, right? Exactly like November 9th. Well, so many of the like the dimensions are really similar too. It's like, oh, it's the sinking in of like, oh, the ranting, blustering, credibly accused, rapey, unfit guy is gonna get the job. And then he's going to have extraordinary power to shape our future. That's it. That's the same dynamic. And it was the dynamic of November. That wake up and the sort of first thought, just that suffocating internalization of reality, right? That that guy.
1: Have you internalized it?
0: I internalized it when I got home last night. I internalized it after at the... I mean, having watched the first half of the hearings without turning away her half, I actually did feel that sort of stupid, naive optimism
1: <laughs> at, at lunch yesterday,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. at lunch, I was like, what would you
1: have thought would have happened yesterday? Well,
0: lunch? I don't want to overestimate how naive and optimistic I was. I was like, you know, all things being equal, they'll probably put him through. But it was like, but how could they? There was that kind of how could they? That woman's testimony was so extraordinary for all kinds of complicated reasons that are you know, in themselves, like the way she presented herself, the she was so polite. She was so deferential. You know, she was so precise.
1: What did you think when you saw like the first images of her?
0: I will. That was actually the single most emotional point for me was when she opened her mouth and started speaking. I started crying. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that was actually a moment because it was really the she'd been silent. Right. We'd read all about this woman. There'd only been these two images of her. We had no sense of what she actually looked like. The image that we had is her in the sunglasses that was everywhere for the past few weeks. We'd never heard her voice. We'd heard these intimate details about her memories, but we'd never heard her voice. And of course, the fact that it was quite a girlish voice, you know, a voice of extreme vulnerability. The view of her, and this is all very reminiscent of Anita Hill, was a view of intense vulnerability. This woman in a room being grilled, By mostly these guys. Grassley's opening statement had been already just sort of repulsive in its the listing of Kavanaugh's accomplishments. It's just grotesque comparison of like the shared suffering of Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. These two have suffered. Fuck you. (laughs) Like this is the thing. I, I wrote this actually last night. But this is this myth of like to be called a racist is as bad as having experienced racism to be called a sexist pig is as bad as having been degraded or discriminated against or violated right and that's the setup a setup that's always designed to protect a white patriarchy that grassley just makes he makes this direct argument opening the whole thing up these two have suffered equally
1: right and the entire hearing mirrors that Conceived.
0: It not only mirrors it, it amplifies the other half that, in fact, it is worse to be accused of assault than it is to have been assaulted. His level of victimhood, the anger, the righteous anger at having had his ascent to power interrupted by these claims that he had violently egressed upon a woman <laughs> like his. Fury, Lindsey Graham's fury. (laughs) Oh, these men had been injured in their attempts to gain power over our laws and our institutions that will extend generations. And somebody interfered with that project. And their fury was incandescent.
1: How do you do your job? Like
0: A lot of drinking. No, I, <laughs> no I, I, I'm actually kidding. I like, actually now can't do a lot of drinking. <laughs> it's too tense.
1: <laughs> when she stands up there, where do your feelings stop and the column you wrote last night begin? Like, Help me understand... Are those two different things, or are they some unified thing?
0: They're mostly a unified thing. That's not always the case. There are a couple of columns I've written in my life, and actually the one I was thinking of yesterday, because the one I did yesterday, I have to say, I mostly wrote it just after her testimony and then wrote the other part at the end of the night because I had to go. I had interviews during parts of his raving testimony which in the end was merciful because I've only had to see, like, I've seen bits of it. I didn't actually have to stare it straight in the face for hours. And so it was actually an experience of writing yesterday that was so reminiscent of the night that Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008. And I remembered it so clearly. So I was, I, my editor had come over to watch them with me, knowing that I had to leave at about lunchtime to go do a couple of interviews. And I had commitments in the afternoon. I had to be on a panel that I'd committed to ages ago last night. And she was watching the testimony, and she wanted to see what the commentary was when they broke for lunch, and I knew I needed to write a draft of my piece. And so I went off into a bedroom in my apartment. You know, I live in like a 750-square-foot apartment, and she was in the living room. So to get away from the sound of the TV, I went into a bedroom and sat on a bed, hunched over, and typed this thing out of a lot of emotion. And this is so reminiscent of the night that Barack Obama won. We had people over at the apartment, and I realized I had to write a piece, and It was an earlier point in my career as a political journalist where it like just occurred. Oh, I'm supposed to work tonight. (laughs) And because there were so many people in our apartment, that was a larger apartment. It was like a thousand square feet. I went I had to go back into our bedroom. And I had sat on my bed hunched over and wrote a piece. And I still remember that piece because it was one of the most emotional pieces I've ever written. When you're doing it as this is still happening on a TV somewhere in the world, there's no distance to say like, ah, should I ratchet that back? Should mm-hmm. I, like, now that I've thought about it for more than an hour, it's just like comes out in the moment. And that's what yesterday felt like to me. It was that same thing. And it was also the piece I wrote yesterday was very emotional. Um, that's not how it works all the time, though. Often it's like I'm thinking about things that have happened over a couple of days. I
1: right, you're like I write a draft.
0: Yeah. I edit the draft. I add another thing that's just happened. You know, that's and that's for the column work that I do, which is you know every week or ten days I write a column. And some of them are emotional, and some of them are in the moment politically, and some of them are angry, and some of them are funny, and so you know, and they all happen differently depending on what the particular news cycle is. But it's not typical that I'm hunched in a bedroom somewhere pounding out an extreme, extraordinarily emotional piece as the news is happening that's you know there are a couple moments
1: yeah I mean I think that's part of why I was asking that I I was thinking about it reading your book too like I feel like who you are and what you write about are very connected at Mm -hmm. least in my understanding of Mm -hmm. you and then when you add an element like yesterday which is the whole country paying attention to this thing that you have been thinking about Mm -hmm. and writing about whether those two things feel separate or not
0: they don't feel at all separate. I feel an extraordinary amount of pressure in the moments that the whole country is paying attention to something that is my lifelong work obsession. That was true during the election too. I felt like, and it's true with the book, it's true with Good and Mad. I felt this way very much when I was writing the book.
1: Yeah, what's that pressure?
0: There's this way in which as a feminist journalist writing about progressive politics, writing about you know gender, race, and class, and inequity in America, a lot of times I'm I'm working away and there are people who read and there are people who are interested. But mostly it's like in a mainstream media context, I'm like, it's kind of a niche thing, right? Like, so I can, I can work away and produce some pieces that I'm really proud of and some pieces that are more like just pieces I had to produce. And it's not that big a deal. But every once in a while when the mainstream focus suddenly shifts over to my little corner of the world and I... Feel like I know this stuff and I understand the dynamics, and I really do. It's it comes out of a. Um, I hope it doesn't sound like grandiose, but like a real sense of like, no, I know this stuff. I know this stuff. How do I? Now everybody's looking. It's my job to make it clear. How do I convey this stuff that's like my own little specialty to a mainstream audience who doesn't have that specialty? And the pressure of that is intense and i often feel i mean also i'm a you know it's a self-critical impulse whatever i also feel like i fall just short i because because i feel it so intensely i want people to be like right there with me and i'm like did you get it did you see did you see everything that i wanted to point out to you did you see it did you see it did i make it really really clear for you and people are like yeah no no i i'm mad too and i'm like no but are you are you really mad how mad though (laughs) (laughs) one to ten (laughs) um because I do feel, I, I mean, this is a thing that I feel lucky about in my work. And I think also ties to this question, of like, how do I do my job? I am extraordinarily lucky that I do feel tremendous passion for what I do, which is not the same thing as saying I always love doing it. But this is me. Like, this is my blood, my brain, my myself. I get to turn toward my job. And very few people have that privilege. And it's been interesting in that during the Trump administration and during the election, so many people would say to me, at least I get to turn away and not pay attention to the news or I stopped watching the news. Boy, I guess you can't do that. And there is this sort of sense like, no, I can't. And my eyeballs are bleeding. But. In general, I feel so grateful because the other thing I hear is like, I wish there were something I could do. And I'm like, I'm very lucky because at least my job gives, not that it's the most effective form, of, there's so much else I could do, but like, at least my job lets me address this head on.
1: Hey, I'm going to take a second and uh, put things on hold, tell you a little bit about the sponsors making today's show possible. First up, Skoggin. It's a watch company, and I will tell you this, they sent me a watch. I'm wearing it right now. It arrived uh, a couple of days ago, and I have not taken this thing off my wrist. It's a true story. Uh, it's a handsome sucker, beautiful watch, and it's also a smartwatch. Here's the thing, it's a smartwatch, watch. can do all the thing, get your text messages and maps and all that good stuff, except uh you don't look like a doofus it's just a good looking watch skagen is inspired by danish culture which focuses on what's meaningful being part of a community making time for relationships living in the moment and uh, the design reflects those ideas the styles are driven by a guiding principle that good design can equal better living they've got men's and women's watches jewelry and these smart watches i'm wearing one of these smart watches right now I've actually really wanted a smartwatch for a while, uh, but I didn't want to look like a schmuck, and I'm into this. It looks great. Skagen products look right any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now, because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Visit Skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N.com and uh, sign up for those emails to get a special discount. Thank you, Skagen, for sponsoring the show also sponsoring the show this week park row books publisher of under my skin by new york times best-selling author lisa unger under my skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer when poppy's husband was brutally murdered she spiraled into an oblivion of grief disappearing for several days only to turn up ragged confused and unable to remember where she'd been those lost days never stopped haunting her And when she begins to sense that someone is following her, Poppy is plunged into a game of cat and mouse, determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death. But can she handle the truth about what really happened? Under My Skin has been named one of fall 2018's most exciting new mysteries and thrillers by Bookish, and one of the most anticipated crime books of 2018 by Crime Reads. Get your copy of Under My Skin from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, or wherever else you find your books. Or listen to the audiobook. You like audio things. You listen to this. Check it out Under My Skin by bestselling author Lisa Unger, available right now. Speaking of now, uh, let's get back to Rebecca. Cool. So last night, when you go uh, into your bedroom to write this piece about this seven hours of hearings, like, who are you writing that for?
0: I'd say there are two audiences that I'm writing it for. One is a group of people who I know that they share my political sentiments, sort of fellow travelers, who often struggle with making clear how they feel about something that's happening politically or socially. And I think one of the my jobs if I do it well, is to put words to what a lot of people are thinking and feeling and want to sort of get clear about the why. What is the dynamic here? How does this correspond to a thing that happened in 1991 that corresponds to a thing that happened in 1986 that corresponds to a thing that happened in 1975, right? Part of my job is writing for those people to help give shape words and context to people who for whom it's useful to see mm-hmm. it drawn out. So that's one. And I guess you could say like, okay, so that's just, you know, preaching to the choir. Although there's that line that like, you got to keep the quiet. Well, I don't remember what the actual line is, but <laughs> you want the choir to keep singing, right? Like preaching to the choir is not a terrible thing. It's actually a very useful thing, especially within social movements. But then there's this other segment that I also feel responsible for writing to. And those are the people who may not initially share my perspective on things. They may not look at the world from a left or a progressive or a feminist point of view, but maybe they're coming to this story because they're bothered by or curious about what they just saw on TV, Mm -hmm. the election that we just had, the way this person is presenting. And there's something, they have questions in their mind and they're questioning their own priors and their own... And so somebody tells them you should read this piece. Well, I also think it's my job to reach them and to lay out a persuasive argument for why I feel this way. It's not just like, okay, I assume we all feel this way. I I also feel responsible for reaching people who don't necessarily come from the same starting point as I do. And that's a big thing. I actually have that philosophy about talking to them. You know, there's always this thing like, how do we talk to the people we don't agree with? And and I think that they're would be a natural assumption that I would be very argumentative. and But I'm actually very much of the, and I mean this as advice to everybody, or not advice, but sort of my ideal for how everybody would communicate with the people who come from a different perspective and how I do both in conversation and in real life and to some degree in my work. I'm trying to be as clear as possible about why I think what I think and kind of offering, like, I'd like to explain to you how I've come to this conclusion. It's not about saying you're wrong. It's about, like, this is why I think I'm right.
1: Is it hard to do that? Is it hard to, like, strike that balance and write for these two different constituencies?
0: No. I mean, sure, it's hard because writing is hard. and (laughs) (laughs) The whole um, thing sucks. It sucks. It's hard. But I don't think that balance – and I think that I tip in one direction or another. Sometimes when I'm angrier, I'm sure I'm more profane and, you know, I – refer to Donald Trump as a racist toddler or something. And that probably is a little alienating to the person It's <laughs> not, right? Like, I certainly tip toward that direction. There are other instances where I probably take care to be less combative, to cater to the person who's not necessarily starting from where I am. So I do go, you know, it's not that it, I always hit a balance between the two. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I believe that part of my job is just... Making a cogent, clear, and persuasive argument, and also trying to show, even when it's not necessarily argumentative, part of the work right now, and I think very often through our history, has been putting inequities on view, right? Like making them visible. That's a huge part of progressive activism, it's a part of social movements. It goes back to, and this is stuff I write about in the book, you know. Mamie Till's decision to have an open casket funeral for her 14-year-old son Emmett after he is killed brutally after being falsely accused of making a pass to a white woman, that her decision to have an open casket funeral so that mourners can see his brutalized body and to publish photographs of it in Jet Magazine, which winds up being catalytic to the civil rights movement, because it makes visible and unavoidable the tolls of brutal racism. That's exposing it. It's forcing people to look at it. There are a million other examples of that. The publication of the photograph of Geraldine Santoro, the woman who died of an illegal abortion, was published in Ms. Magazine in 1973. The live streaming of the deaths of the murders of African-Americans by police, the shootings of African-Americans by police. I think Philando Castile's death is the one that stands out most, but there have been so many that has helped to catalyze national interest in and engagement in the Black Lives Matter movement. And so a lot of what I think about and write about now, part of the process is showing people where to look to see where the inequity is Mm -hmm. so that we can't pretend like, oh, that's not what it is. That's just something boys do. Like, no, let's. And that was that's a big part. For example, when I wrote about Me Too, I did it in an extremely precise way to try to Make visible and make clear where the discrimination was, where the power imbalance was, the many angles from which power was imbalanced. Here's how we're seeing it. Here's what's being shown to us. And also making visible the historical connections. A lot of what I do is tying what's happening Now in politics and culture Mm -hmm. to things that have happened in the past, trying again to show that we are engaged in a set of fights and struggles that extends centuries before us and will extend centuries after we are gone.
1: I knew there was going to be a Tracer column last night Mm -hmm. and I was waiting for it. And Mm -hmm. it felt like um, that was part of the way it was kind of received on the Internet a little bit was like Tracer has weighed in.
0: Yeah, I wish it had been better. But yeah, go on.
1: It was great and it was you, but also like my experience of your writing is that it is confident and from a distinct perspective. Mm. How did that come for you, that confidence?
0: Well, I think it came with, and this is its own lesson about, I guess, power. Um, It came with professional success. Well, not just actually, it also came with um, learning more. I mean, a lot of what I was writing as a young journalist, some of which was good, was written out of a place with no background, no context. None of what I'm saying I'm trying to offer people right now did I have when I started this job. I didn't have any grounding in history. Where'd you start? I started as a journalist at the New York Observer. I was a fact checker there. I actually had a job as an assistant at Talk Magazine, but I didn't have any plans to become a journalist. I'd never studied journalism. I'd worked for an actor. Then I went to be a secretary at Talk Magazine. And then Um, I met journalists there who said you'd be a good journalist and a mentor of mine, Lisa Chase, who's an editor, said you should work at the New York Observer.
1: Was there some other thing you wanted to do?
0: No, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was quite aimless. This was in my mid-20s. It wasn't deep into my adulthood. But I didn't know. I didn't know. I'd come from a family of academics. My father's a rare book librarian. My mom's an English professor. My aunt's an English professor. My grandfather had been an English teacher. Like, I, I came from a family of academics. I thought about going to graduate school, um, decided I didn't want to. But then there was there were not a series of other paths that were evident to me. I wanted to live in New York. I knew that. So I started at the New York Observer as a fact checker and a junior reporter. They, you know, Peter Kaplan who was the editor at the time, made me be a gossip columnist, which was like anathema to me. Um, but it was <laughs> Were you good it, at it? No. I was terrible. Yeah, I mean, you know, I the, look, I got good at it. I got okay at it. What I got good at was like the plumbing of journalism. I had a wonderful editor, Frank De Giacomo, and that is where I learned about reporting as like, you know, connecting the right kind of pipes together. Seriously, it's like plumbing. Like the basic stuff, like how to meet a deadline, how to put sentences together, even when you're not really sure that you have anything to say, but you right. have to fill at that time in a paper, you know, you have to fill inches. So you have to meet this deadline, how to pick up the phone. Like, this sounds ordinary, but as many of us who have practiced journalism know that sometimes the very act of, like, making this basic phone call to somebody can be the kind of thing that you just don't do all day, Um I learned how to pick up the phone, how important it was to spell things right, how to lay out a story, like the basic stuff that lots of people learn in journalism school, I guess. But I hadn't gone to journalism school. And the gossip column and actually the lesson that I learned and that I sort of sometimes try to give young people who now come to me looking for advice and they're always like, "Okay, whatever, (laughs) was – writing about things i actually didn't care about and it wasn't just that it was like i had to write about real estate listings and things that were just so far from anything that i felt passionate about or really had opinions about forced me to figure out how to make writing interesting to myself in order to make it interesting to readers (laughs) Right. right and it was good to have to learn those skills on subjects about which I didn't have strongly held opinions, because I wasn't my my opinions weren't getting in there and messing up. Right, just find what a the way story, for this to it It was like find a way for this to be a story to tell readers what happened and why they should care. Do it now. Learn the skills. <laughs> right,
1: even though you don't totally exactly care
0: what it is. no find the story. Find a story when you don't think there is one. Find it. Write it. Get it in in an hour. That was what I learned at the Observer, and it was that was great for me.
1: So when did you start writing about stuff you cared about?
0: When I went to Salon, which was in the fall of 2003. And I went to Salon where an old friend of mine from Talk Magazine was an editor of the Life section, (laughs) which was this kind of catch-all category it meant women, and <laughs> but it was not feminist. Like it was not designed to be feminist. It was it was the section that had once been called Mothers Who Think, and which is an amazing. Whoa. Do you not do you not remember that? It was one of Salon's great when Salon was founded, and I can't remember the year that it was founded. Was it would it have been ninety five?
1: Mothers Who Think.
0: There was this section in Salon, and Salon is a great publication with this incredible history of beautiful, incisive writing and criticism. And there was a section called Mothers Who Think, and that was the section about women.
1: Whoa.
0: (laughs) They had renamed it, it was now the life section. And the thing that happened there is that I was given freedom to write. About things I cared about. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started very tentatively to write from a feminist perspective. And this was an era when feminist media was essentially non-existent in any mainstream media. Katha Pollitt was writing for The Nation. That's it. Right. Wow. <laughs> so there were feminist blogs that had deep roots going back several years, but they had not been pulled into anything mainstream. This was about the same time that Ariel Levy was starting to write about feminism at New York Magazine, that feministing was launching. And then soon after came Jezebel and Double X. And I mean, the, the sort of ascendancy of, of a feminist media at mainstream publications. Um, but that wasn't true when I started at Salon. But I did get to choose what I wanted to write about. And I started writing about things from a feminist perspective. And of course, my editor, the secret about a lot of media is that there were women working in it who were feminists. It had just been a couple decades where you weren't allowed to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the fact that I started writing these things from sort of a baby feminist perspective and they were getting traffic, of course, was an incentive that I could keep writing about stuff from a feminist perspective. But I knew nothing. I had no I'd never taken a women's history class. I'd studied literature, often from a feminist perspective. But that mostly was like, I mean, I don't want to belittle my own keen thinking on the subject, but it was like, is it fucked up that Mr. Rochester kept his first wife in the attic? I think so. Okay, like this is um, I mean, it wasn't that rudimentary, but. I didn't have any grounding. I didn't know from the history of the women's movement. I didn't. It wasn't until many years later that I even began to read anything about the suffrage and abolition movements and how they, you know, sort of formed together and the kind of racist splits that divided them and divided the women's movement. That stuff all came to me. I mean, I I, I really first had to read up on that or was forced to during two thousand eight. So it's like years mm-hmm. of me writing as a feminist before I even get to that basic history because guess what we're not taught any of that history in school so yeah that's where I started developing a beat about feminism
1: and was there a moment that you can remember where it felt like this is more than a beat like I'm not going to go from this to I I don't know like covering DC or something like uh, that you weren't going to shift that beat that that was going to be what you did there
0: was a shift in the beat when it became political in a presidential sense which at that point Covering presidential politics sort of equaled covering politics in my world, right? And that happened, I can tell you, practically the day that happened when my then editor told me in 2006, Joan Walsh, who was the number two at Salon at the time, pretty much told me at gunpoint that I was going to have to write about Hillary Clinton. I loathed. Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I did not want to write about Hillary Clinton. And I had made the terrible mistake of I'd been to some party for women in politics. And I'd heard a lot of feminists talking about how much they hated Hillary Clinton. And I'd come in and sort of mention this in passing. And Joan Walsh was like, you got to write about this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not writing about Hillary Clinton. This is not. And she really forced me to. And I wrote a very long feature for Salon, which was, you know, several thousand words about feminist ambivalence, about Hillary Clinton. Now, I haven't read that piece in a long time. And it it actually did. Writing the piece forced me to question, you know, the sources of my own antipathy toward her at the time. It did make things more complicated. But that is the moment where it became clear to me. That was also the moment where I was like, oh, I'm probably going to have to keep writing about Hillary Clinton <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to write about... Feminism. I'm gonna have to keep writing about this person. <laughs> ha ha! Little did I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 2006. That's like a. Uh, that's like a full decade.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I got a full decade out of that. <laughs> <laughs> great. Good times. Cold beers. It ended well. It' great. I mean, <laughs> <are> we all. <laughs> I think we can all agree that that went very well. But it actually that was. I have to say. I mean. What a tremendous opportunity to tell a story about America.
1: Well, okay, I mean, this is the thing I'm trying to get at, and I'm, I apologize for dancing around it. Like, last night, I knew this thing was going to come from you, and I would not have been able to predict what was in it, but I could have like, pretty accurately predicted its tone, mm. you know? And its feel. And I wonder where that confidence and certainty when that happens and how that process happens. That's what I'm interested in. Like, uh, when do you become Rebecca Tracer?
0: Certainly not during 2008. 2008 was a time of me, I was covering that election. Actually, maybe this is the answer. Throughout 2008, I covered that election. I was writing about Hillary Clinton. I was writing about Barack Obama. I was writing about John Edwards, whose candidacy I supported. (laughs) (laughs) Very proud, Um, and uh, that was a time of deep uncertainty about what I was feeling. There was, I mean, the kids may not remember, (laughs) but that primary was, if anything, more rancorous than the Hillary Bernie primary of 2016. And in part because you had these historic firsts, you had Barack Obama, you had Hillary Clinton. And then once again, my candidate, John Edwards. (laughs) Fine specimen of a man. (laughs) Good guy. Yeah. I liked him because he had the most progressive politics. (laughs) And I was constantly second guessing myself. Like I was I was second guessing myself about preferring John Edwards to Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And I was writing always from the outside. I had no access. I tried to interview I, I actually did I profiled Michelle Obama in Iowa. They let me profile. That was still sort of par for the course. Like you could you know, I might be able to write about a wife. Now, Michelle right. Obama is a transformative figure. And so this is like, you know, this is n- n- tremendous. But I wasn't, still, I never got near any of the candidates.
1: Still, that was the, that was the response if you were coming from the Mothers Who Think section?
0: <laughs> yes. The life section, Max. It's the life <laughs> section. And Hillary's campaign, like, I, w- I mean, it was like every day, hello, uh, is there any way I could talk to Hillary Clinton? <laughs> Nobody ever called me back. I never once, I tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I never heard from Hillary Clinton. And that was fine. I was writing from an outside perspective. I was basically like it was like a columnist job, sort of, except I was writing reported features and opinion features about how people were reacting to this candidacy. But it was very unsure. Like I I was constantly questioning myself. I wrote a whole piece about how I didn't know who to vote for. John Edwards, unfortunately, had to drop out because there's an affair. It was bad. And I couldn't vote for him in New York. And he was kind of my out from having to make that choice between Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And it had been so freighted and all the identity stuff. But I couldn't vote for him. And then I wrote a whole piece about my indecision. Right. So there's an example of a piece that was literally about my inability to make a decision in a voting booth. Right. So it certainly wasn't then. And at the end, after I became more supportive of Hillary Clinton for a variety of complicated reasons, but I was never sure about it. And the rancor was so intense. And again, between people who were allies of mine, right? This is like any primary battle. It's like your best friends and the people who you agree with about everything think you're horrible because you disagree with them about a candidate. And it was really shattering for me. Like it was very, I was deeply upset. I was sick to my stomach all the time. I was. Am I, am I wrong? Are they wrong? Do I think, you know? And after Hillary Clinton dropped out and made her speech about the glass ceiling, I remember somebody, my book agent, who I'd had for a while, but I never wanted to write a book, said, do you want to write a book about this? I was like, fuck no. Nobody's ever going to want to hear the word Hillary Clinton again forever. No, I'm not writing a book about this. And I went through that summer and I covered the convention. I was enjoying writing about politics. Right. And then on an afternoon in September, this is the exact moment.
1: 2008.
0: 2008. Um, probably a week after Sarah Palin has been nominated for the vice presidential slot on the Republican ticket. I'm homesick and I'm watching the news, whatever cable news I was watching at the time. And somebody was trying to explain You know, oh, well, they got Sarah Palin to get women's votes for Hillary. And I was like, this is so stupid. They don't know that's not how it works. Women don't vote in the block. What are they talking about? They don't know what they're talking about. I should be on TV. I should be telling you why. And I'm like snottily yelling at the television. And I'm like, no, they don't understand this story. And then I was like, I understand this story. And I like all of a sudden I was like, wait, I understand this story. And I called my agent. (laughs) I was like, hi, I have a book I want to write. I need to tell the story of this election. And all of a sudden I knew what the story was and it was about gender and race and class and it was about Hillary and Michelle and Sarah Palin and all of it. Right. And this was an important story about a crucial year in a history that I suddenly understood I was going to have to learn a lot more about really quickly. But I was pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> that this was going to correspond to a lot of it. How'd that feel? Thrilling. I was, it was a real moment of clarity. It was a real moment of like, wait, I understand this. And this is also maybe all the stuff they tell you about imposter syndrome or something. There was something about being like, I know better than that person on TV. I understand this better. I can be on TV. It, I didn't really want to be on TV. But <laughs> I was like, I have more authority on this than this person who's saying something that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I have felt that many times since. Right? That was, But there was a moment of assuredness.
1: Right. It was like you don't have to um, bank off of what they're saying. Right. You can just say that it's wrong.
0: I'm going to correct this. And that's actually, that sounds, I'm so keenly aware of how everything, like, it's not nice for ladies to go around telling, telling people they're going to correct their mistakes. But um, but there is a degree to which I think a mainstream media, which has had far too few women, far too few women of color. I'm not one. Um there's a way in which mainstream media gets all kinds of stories about gender and race wrong and there is an impulse to be like wait there's a story that's out there that needs to be told and we gotta some of us have a responsibility to try to get it right and get it out there
1: Mm -hmm. how closely did you feel personally like how closely tied to the 2016 election did you feel
0: like how invested in it was I yeah every molecule of my body
1: and did you think
0: i uh, thought she would lose
1: you thought she would lose
0: until the last 24 hours during which i thought for one glorious period she would win (laughs) it was extremely bad timing (laughs) (laughs) i can tell you exactly exactly when i i thought she would lose the whole time and i was livid at the assuredness of everybody around me you know and, and part of i write about some of this in the book like the assuredness that she's inevitable I never I thought it was bananas insane that anybody ever used the word inevitable about a country that had never managed to nominate a woman for the presidency, never managed to have a woman vice president. It was a historical garbage. Anyone who said that she was inevitable and that to say that does not mean like, oh, she just lost because of sexism. There was like a refusal to look straight at this country if you thought that it was inevitable that Hillary Clinton was going to beat a candidate. I also thought it was garbage that people said, "Oh, he's a trash fire. All this stuff is disqualifying." I was like, "Have you met America?"
1: There was there's a connection between what happened yesterday to me at least mm-hmm. and the Access Hollywood moment. Uh-huh. It felt similar to me. Like uh, watching her testimony yesterday felt like hearing that tape. And there was this most of me was basically like, "Ah, there's no well, now there's no way."
0: Well, I said that, you know, I felt and I was mad at myself for feeling hope over the past couple weeks. I felt it even before she testified, like, this is going to make a difference. Why did I feel that? I know better than that. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, we're going to we're going to do it better this time. Why did I feel that? That was irrational. But I can't help. Like, I Why um, did you feel that? Because I'm in my heart. I actually am an optimist about this country. Um Usually I'm a pragmatic optimist, which is like, yes, he's going to be confirmed and we're going to spend the rest of our lives fighting to get back to where we started when I was born in 1975. But (laughs) the good news (laughs) is that everybody's now angry and politically engaged and we're having a revival of civic participation that is absolutely crucial if we want a functioning democracy. So
1: (laughs) grand scheme of things.
0: Good news! (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Right, it's not... Like, I'm both... I thought Donald Trump would win the presidency. I just didn't think that these... That open racism, sexism, and xenophobia are disqualifying in this country. I just didn't believe... I believed that those were his greatest assets and that that is why he was picked by his party to run against Hillary Clinton to succeed Barack Obama.
1: How did people in your life, not just people like on the internet... But how did people in your life respond to you, Rebecca Traster thinking she couldn't win?
0: Well, here's a secret. I didn't say this aloud to a ton. I said it. I confided it to friends. I didn't say something that I didn't believe. The thing I said most consistently, I think, during 2016, including, like, in public, I think. And I, I'm sure we could go back and find 40 times when I said something that was wrong. And I, I sometimes worked on the optimism, actually, both to get myself to feel it. But also because I think it's crucial if we are not optimistic, then why are we even fucking doing this? We're certainly not going to win if we all think everything is doomed. Right. So like the only hope we had was some degree of hope that this could happen. And I did feel hope. I did feel hope. I hoped that I was wrong. Mostly the thing I said over and over again was, I don't know. And everybody who's here telling you that they know what's going to happen. They're lying. (laughs) They're selling you snake oil. No one knows. And I was sometimes kind of laughed at on cable TV. I remember an instance where I was, I think I was on Chris Hayes' show, and he said, what's going to happen tomorrow? And I love going on Chris's show, and it's a show I go on most regularly. And it's actually a place where that has helped me be able to be angry in public in a way that has really sort of transformed my comfort with saying what I really think in public and, in terms that are comfortable to me. But Chris asked me, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. And Rachel Maddow cut in afterwards. She was, I don't think she was being at all unkind, but she was like, the rarely heard, I don't know. And I was like, oh shit, I did my job wrong. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to pretend that you have authority.
1: Get that take.
0: Right. I often don't know. I didn't know even last night for sure what would happen with Kavanaugh. And so often what I was saying was not, I didn't, I hated the fatalistic, he's gonna win. We all know he's gonna win. I f- may have felt that fear in my heart, and I may have thought that that was probably the case, but I didn't believe in going around saying it. My dad does that all the time. My father is one of those like, well, of course he's going to win. What are you? And I'm like, right, we can't. That's not useful moving forward. It's not useful for me to be able to do my job. It's not useful for the nation to try to enact a different result, right? So it wasn't like I was going around chiding people and saying it was just that in my heart, I was very fearful, Mm-hmm. I didn't know. And then in the last, I was running around after her in Pennsylvania, the weekend before the election, chasing her, doing like some gonzo journalism where I was, they weren't letting me have access to her. And I was jumping in her contingent's car with like my suitcase being like, hi, Jen Palmieri. <laughs> and she's like, why are you in my car? That was literally two days before the election. I was like, I don't know, but the press bus just left. I guess you're going to have to talk to me. <laughs> it was like the closest I ever came to sort of being impolite as a journalist but i became optimistic i actually thought she was going to win maybe from sunday night through monday why i don't know everybody else was so sure i finally let myself i just wanted to feel happy i didn't want to die of fear um the rally the night before the election was one of the most moving political moments of my life it was i grew up in philadelphia it was at independence hall i'm a lifelong bruce springsteen fan who'd been very angry that he hadn't been out on the road with her he performed that night it was this silent rally it was like just a mob of people on independence mall and i was so moved by the what i saw as the audacity of how they were ending this campaign and it was that's what i wanted It's what I wanted the campaign to be. The Obamas were there and Hillary was there. Bill was also there. (laughs) But the Obamas were there and Hillary was there and they were at the site of the founding. The place that we fetishize for its patriotic promise, sort of pointing directly to the failures of the founding and the omissions of the founding and the fact that the founders, our beloved founders, would not have ever conceived of or wanted to imagine that these are the people who could lead the country. I thought it was so powerful. And the the rally was just dead silent, not in, in like the most held breath kind of way. It wasn't dead silent and like, wow, we really need to get the crowd revved up. It was just like reverentially silent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, America might be better than I assumed it was. And I was so happy.
2: <laughs> it
0: sucked so much the
2: next day. <laughs>
0: it was horrible like to get sucker punched into thinking that we're better because I knew I knew we weren't I knew we weren't and then I let myself I let myself think that we might be
1: when did you start thinking about anger
0: Uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's 2016 2017
1: So it took like uh, six weeks, seven weeks?
0: Well, no, it was. um... So it turns out I've been thinking about anger for a long time, (laughs) but I hadn't thought of it as one of the key frames or through lines of the story that I've been learning and trying to tell. And I was having a really hard time in that period post-election, obviously having a hard time like so many people, but also trying to figure out what my work was, what my job was, what is the story I want to be telling, how do I do my work, and I couldn't, my whole head, I felt like my brain was boiling, I felt like I couldn't get a clear thought, I couldn't write clear sentences, I mean, it was like, uh. A nervous breakdown or a kind of intellectual breakdown. I couldn't make anything come out clearly. And I was trying to explain to my husband, this like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what I'm going to do for my job. I don't know what I'm going to write about. I don't know how to approach this. And I just like, but mostly I can't think straight. I just feel like it can't get clear in my head because I'm so angry. And my husband said, well, maybe that's what you're going to write about. And as soon as he said it, I felt like tremendous clarity. Mm. It just was like, it, it was like an alleviation Of pressure. Like when a headache goes away and you feel great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Had you been um, like in your life when you were a kid and you're a young person, were you good at getting mad?
0: Yeah, I was famous in my family for having a bad temper and it was clearly something I was not supposed to have. Like it was a bad quality that I had a temper I now see it, my seven-year-old daughter, and I think it's a pain in the ass that she has a bad temper. And I find myself saying to her, like, you don't have to have a temper tantrum about it. Like, you can just tell me that you don't like the lunch, right? (laughs) I I
1: like the idea of you just being like, "Uh, too much anger. Yeah,
0: no, I do. I mean, you know, every once in a while when they're like, I find myself questioning. I'm like, okay, but you can't tell them that all anger is good, (laughs) right? Because we can ratchet this back about, like, your sticker book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But. Yeah, I had a bad temper, and I was always told my father had a bad temper, and my brother was quite even-tempered. He was younger than I was. And so I was... The thing about Rebecca was she had a bad temper, and it was clearly understood as a negative. And I was very self-conscious about it. The first conversation I ever had with my husband on the phone, we met, and then it was like a tentative, like, maybe we'll call each other on the phone and talk. It was actually... I was in Iowa reporting on Michelle Obama and had just seen John Edwards, and I got on the phone and called my husband, who was also a John Edwards. Uh, He was not my husband. He was just a guy I'd met. Um, And we talked. And in that first conversation I ever had with him on the phone, I was like, you should know I have a bad temper.
1: Wow, really? Uh
0: Uh-huh. Now, I think he would tell you, my temper is actually not that bad. Like, I do. When I get mad, I will often yell, and there are moments, like where I have yelled and I'm, like, incandescently angry. But I'm not a brute. Like, I just – I sometimes get mad.
1: I know you a tiny bit. Yeah. And I've seen you be sort of, like, mad. You're always, like, uh, joking when you're mad. Yeah, there are
0: definitely times that I'm not joking (laughs) when I'm mad. (laughs) Um, My husband and I fight very rarely. We have – it's just the nature of our relationship. We – he's the evenest tempered human being in the world. And he hates fighting. And we don't fight. We're just – we have a very – our rela- I feel very lucky in the nature of our relationship, but there have been, you know, instances <laughs> where we have fought. And let me tell you, I have a really bad temper. When it comes out, like it is, it can be brutal. It's just not that. It, but it's the truth is, it's not that often. And I get mad. Like it's okay, you know, it's not some terrible character flaw. It doesn't come out in me every day. It doesn't come out all the time. Like, but yes, I do. I can erupt. So, yeah, when I was a kid, that was a thing that was true about Rebecca is that she has a bad temper.
1: And was that connected for you to this book?
0: I think that the, the censure on my anger that is closer to the root of what's behind the book was an adult censure on anger. And that was the feeling that whatever I was angry about, especially in the lead up to the 2016 election, but so many other instances wasn't really legitimate that it was like that i was borrowing fury from an earlier era where there really was misogyny Mm. that i've actually i've been you know reading and listening to other journalists for example many journalists of color who were writing about the racism Undergirding Trump's campaign, and we're told that they were being hysterical and borrowing from other eras. And come on, we just elected Barack Obama. And like, we're being this is economic anxiety. And by the way, to say that there's racism and misogyny powering the Trump campaign is not to deny that there are also issues of economic. Anxiety and economic inequality that are tied right into those things and, in fact, right into racism and, and misogyny themselves. But there I had experienced that as the person who was writing about the Clinton campaign from a feminist perspective and constantly being told that any rage, feminist rage on the behalf of Hillary Clinton, like feminist rage at Hillary Clinton. Was valid. And and I'm not disagreeing that by many measures it was it's and had she been elected, I would have spent a lot of her presidency Angry at Hillary Clinton, right, from a feminist and a left perspective. I knew. I always knew that was the deal. But to be angry in a way that was in any way defensive of or on her behalf was crazy, laughable, hillbot, you know. It was written off as super feminized, girlish, brainless, feather-brained, like, cheerleady stuff, you know. Seriously, the hillbots, you know, fangirls. And that was the kind of it was the sort of discounting of rage at inequalities, gendered, racial that had preceded the election that probably foregrounded my desire to explode with some anger after it. Because Mm -hmm. I had felt told in very many instances that that kind of anger was like misplaced and not real in the lead up to the election.
1: There's a, There are a couple paragraphs at the very end of your book about the um, very personal and physical byproduct of spending, you know, you wrote this book very, very fast, mm-hmm. of spending like a concentrated couple of months thinking all about anger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you just uh, walk me through that a little bit, like- What was that physical impact on you?
0: It was great. It was salutary. I would say it's this weird thing. And and I include it in the book. And I try to be so careful in how I frame it in the book and also how I talk about it afterwards. Because it's not like a self-help thing. I'm really, believe me, this is not Rebecca Tracer's path to good health, good sex, and like, you know, weight loss is like, feel anger. That's the next book. Right. That's the next book. and I'll get to why I'm so cautious about that, but I had this experience of going into the book wanting to talk with respect and value about the political consequence of women's anger historically and in a contemporary, through a contemporary lens. So I went into the book valuing anger, right? I was writing in many ways an ode to the power of anger, but I had so internalized the messages that were sent all the time about how anger is bad for us. Dur- while writing the book, I told my dentist, you know, like I was writing a book about anger and he goes, oh, he's like, all my women patients are angry. And I was like, terrific. And they were like, he said, no, no, it's very bad for them. They grind their teeth. Right. And I'd read all the stuff, the cortisol, this, the high blood pressure, heart disease, you know, claw- my, my hands are often claws when I wake up in the morning. Right. I feel what I have always understood to be partly the product of anger, you know, in my physical life. So I had made reference to it when I drafted. I started writing this book in February and I ended in June, June 1st. And when I'd written my introduction, there was a paragraph that I had written in February that said, of course, you know, anger is bad for you. You know, high blood pressure, stress, whatever. Like I'd had a couple sentences in there that I'd sort of uh, just completely understood to be true, despite the fact that I was making a case for it as a political force for women. So as I was finishing the end of May, and I had written this book, it was very stressful. I had to do it very quickly. It was a very tight deadline. I was anxious about not getting it done. I was anxious about it being good. The news was horrific the whole time. One of the things I realized is that that period, February, March, April, and May of 2018, had been like the period of my adulthood and certainly the past few years that I had felt the healthiest. I had slept like a rock. I had exercised more than I ever had in my life. I just wanted to. I'd had energy. I'd eaten well. I, like, wanted to eat fruits and vegetables all the time. It wasn't – I'm not somebody who does a lot of thinking about my diet or my – like, I just wanted – I felt good. I felt good. I had a good sex life, like, which I do, but, like, it was a particularly good period for my sex life. Like, I – my relationships with my – with my kids and my husband and my parents were – my friends were really good. I was working all the time. So it is fair to say that there were limitations on how much time I was spending with my friends. But I just felt good. And I was going back and reading that introduction. I wrote it straight through beginning to end. And I went back at the end and I'm reading the introduction. And I'm like, I don't know that this thing that I'd always just assumed was true. Because sure, it makes sense. Anger's bad for you. You don't want it to rot it from your insides or whatever. Rot you out from your insides. I was like, I don't know if it's that. Or if it's the fact that we never get to do what I just got to do, Mm -hmm. which was just be angry and have nobody tell me that it made me sound dumb or irrational or was going to hurt the points that I was trying to make. You know, like nobody was actually censuring my anger. In fact, they were encouraging me to think seriously about it. My editors, my husband, my friends who were reading and talking to me about the project, they were taking what I was thinking about anger and my own anger and other women's anger seriously. And it was great. (laughs) I felt great. I was happy. I was stressed as fuck. And I was really upset about Donald Trump and the failures of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I had all kinds of thoughts and feelings and fury. But I felt really good. <laughs> and I was like, I think this is a very rare instance in which I have had the sort of perfect test case of what if we just got to be angry and people treated that with respect and gave us space and didn't tell us we were ugly bitches? <laughs> Maybe anger's not bad for us. <laughs> maybe it's everybody telling us we shouldn't be angry that's bad for us and gives us high blood pressure and makes us grind our teeth and wake up in the morning with claws for hands like maybe that's it and so i thought it was important to include that but the thing that makes me anxious about it because i think it does stand out i've been asked about it a lot by by people i do fear that it will be taken as some like self-help imperative. And the fact is, part of what this book seeks to identify and describe is that that perfect world that I got this rare opportunity to live in does not exist. The penalties for women who express anger, and especially for women of color, for economically vulnerable women. I mean, I come to this with like 50 degrees of privilege here, right? It's my job. I was being literally paid money to write this book. I am a white, middle-class woman. I was paying nothing for this. I was being remunerated for it. So you can't replicate this, right? This thing that I had this perfect, you know, test tube experiment of. And so I don't want my experience to be held up as like, so ladies, your new health regimen is rage all day. Because the fact is we live in a world that does punish women for expressing their anger, that denies them jobs, that attaches to them bad reputations, as difficult to work with crazy bitches because they're reasonably angry about something that they have every reason to be angry about. We live in a world in which Black women's anger is either caricatured and they get written off as cartoons or regarded as threats and face steep, often physical penalties for expressing dissent or dissatisfaction. So You know, when I talk about this, I don't mean it to be prescriptive. I mean it to be descriptive of a particular experience that I had that was extraordinarily unusual, but that made me question a premise that I think all of us internalize, which is that it's the anger that's bad for us. I no longer believe that
1: that's true. Are you ready for, like, there's something about the timing for this (laughs) that I'm interested in for you. Like, this thing happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. Literally, like three days before you're going to publish a book about <laughs> the history of women's anger Thanks. and what it could mean going forward. And now you're you're leaving what Monday for your book mm-hmm. tour? Yeah, are you ready? Like, are you? No, I'm not are, ready. Are you ready for this? No,
0: there are a couple things I'm not ready for. <laughs> and I, my thoughts on this and the timing have evolved, actually. So a few weeks ago, in the sort of week of the Kavanaugh hearings, the original set of hearings. I had heard rumblings, as many people had, that there might be an accusation forthcoming. I didn't know who from who or what kind of accusation. I heard just rumors. And I thought, I knew my book was, what what I thought was a kind of disbelief, oh my God, immediately thinking about Anita Hill. And the Anita Hill hearings have been in every book I've ever written. I view them as like the crucial sort of fulcrum on which the period of feminism that I've written about, you know, rises and falls on what happened with Anita Hill. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't. Mostly, aside from my book, just sort of globally, like, this is what's, go-. like, after Me Too, after this, like, this is this is where this is going to go. Like, it was too on the nose, the narrative symmetry of it. Then when I did think about it in the terms of my book, I was like, well, at first I thought, what crazy timing. But I can't tell you the number of times. The anger, the waves of anger in the different forms that women's anger have taken over this past couple of years and even the time I was writing the book have been so varied that there were a million times like when the march for our lives was happening and and Emma Gonzalez and Sarah Chadwick were being openly angry I was like oh my god my book should be coming out right now I was just starting it you know the teacher strikes oh my god my book should be coming out right now the women winning primaries and these historic numbers I, I was like oh my god if only my book were out right now so this has happened at first I was sort of like well, yet again, there's going to be another efflorescence of rage. Then we got closer and it became more apparent what this was going to be and what form it was going to take. And a couple of weeks ago, I was making jokes like, wow, the Simon & Schuster marketing department really went all out on this one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then by this week, I no longer found anything funny about it. And the problem with it is that it is, the whole experience has been, I think, so much more viscerally traumatic than I could have predicted. And I'm pretty good at forecasting gloom and (laughs) trauma. It was so, the hearings yesterday were so horrifying. The way in which she was treated and which women have been treated is so horrifying. This morning there was video of these women screaming at Jeff Flake that was so moving to me. It was so inspiring and moving. Like these women being in a world in which I, this is the story I've been chronicling, in which women are told all the time not to yell, not to point their fingers at people, not to express themselves this way. These women going into the elevator, pointing their fingers and screaming at him. I was like, oh my god, this is like it was like a bomb and also so energizing. But this is all happening in the context of people who are going to want to say to me, what does it mean? And one of the great lessons that I have taken from what I've learned as in my years covering this stuff and the education that I've been trying to give myself about how these things happen is you can't, it's the opposite of the take industry. Like very often, unfortunately, my answer is still going to be, I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I don't know. And- I think that that being in a moment where everyone wants to be told by a person who's coming to them with some expertise on this topic, right? Like I am, please have me on your talk show. Like I like to talk about these issues. (laughs) I do have some expertise about what's happened in the past. And I have many thoughts about what might happen out of this. But like, ultimately, so many of us, we want to be told the answer in part because it's really hard to not know. And part of That is because we understand that if we want it to go a certain way, we have some responsibility to participate, all of us, whether it's in, you know, knocking doors for candidates or going out to get out the vote wherever we live or in a neighboring state or whether it's going to protests or whether it's fundraising for people we believe in or whether it's seeking out organizing groups or if it's running for office ourselves. This moment calls on us to act and that's people don't that's hard and it's also hard because events like this past week remind you that you can act and you can care and you can put everything out there and you can still lose horribly degradingly humiliatingly and it can make you crazy with fury that will feel futile and that's hard that's a hard thing to sign up for Nobody wants that. What we want is that thing that we were told before 2016, don't worry, she's going to win. It's inevitable. We want that. And the hard bargain of these past few years has been having to come to terms with the fact that that promise was wrong, that the guys and women on TV saying this is what's going to happen, they weren't the authorities. What's going to happen next continues to be up to us. And continues to depend on us being willing to do that hard thing and risk heartbreak and defeat and degradation and hopelessness by continuing to participate and to try and to work and to hope that we can effect a change through some other channel that's going to require a lot of us and for the rest of our lives. That's a hard thing to ask people to do. But that's the answer when we say we don't know what's going to happen because that's the truth that's what this time is requiring of all of us
1: so how do you keep doing it like if you can connect so viscerally to what you want and the very real possibility that it won't happen
0: what else am I gonna do that's the that's the whole crux of it I give up I, I mean <laughs> I work at Goldman Sachs. Like, (laughs) just like take the money and run. Like, I don't know. Like, there's nothing else I could do with my life. I don't mean just like be a journalist or nothing. Like, I must write or die. I'm like, how even if I weren't a journalist, which given the state of journalism is entirely possible for the second half of my life, like I would never be able to stop. This is like an investment in trying to make it better, even if you suspect that you're going to lose a lot. Like, what else is there to do? I can't disconnect. I don't want to disconnect. I don't want to. I think that the vision of the better future is dependent on those of us who can envision it, committing to continuing to work toward it, acknowledging that maybe we're not going to see it in our lifetimes. But you know what? The people we most admire from the past, they didn't see it in their lifetimes either. And they still did the work that got us to here.
1: Do you feel like part of your job is conveying that to that audience we were talking about at the beginning for whom yesterday might have felt completely deflating?
0: Yes. I feel like it's a huge part of my job. I feel like a question I get asked very often if I do speeches or whatever is, you know, about how do we live through this being so hard? and defeating and feeling like there's no way to win and even when we win, you know, they'll find a way to gut healthcare anyway. This how do we how do we keep going? And um, and I really respect the place of anxiety and pain that those questions come from. But I do think that having learned so much about the history is helpful to me at this juncture because it is at hand in my head. I have stories of periods that preceded this one where that kind of defeat was every day and people kept going. And those are my heroes. Those are the people who made the history that I write about. Those are the people who did gain victories that in turn created conditions that meant that the people that we're writing about now can continue the fight from a place that's further along the road. And there's a, there's some of that in at the end of the book. I have a lot of, you know, Shirley Chisholm ran for president in 1972. By the way, Shirley Chisholm also said something. I don't know if this is in the book. She said, I ran for president in part because Al Smith ran for president. Right. Al Smith made it possible for John F. Kennedy to run for president. I'm running for president in the hopes that somebody who's not a white male will one day run for president, Right. Shirley Chisholm lost, but, you know, a person I write about in my book a lot is Barbara Lee, who is the California congresswoman, probably my favorite politician in America. Barbara Lee is brought into electoral politics by the presidential campaign of Shirley Chisholm. Barbara Lee is currently in the House of Representatives. She's the only person who voted against the AUMF in 2001, the authorization for the use of military force that grants the president, you know, the ability to go to war without congressional approval. And she lost. She's the only person in Congress, one out of 435, who voted against it in the wake of September 11th. She's been fighting for it ever since. The fights that she has for things that seem impossible. She finally got bipartisan support for it in 2017 after, you know, 16 years of fighting for it for repealing the AUMF. She gets enough support. Now that got gutted by Paul Ryan. It got taken out. Her repeal that was passed with bipartisan support in 2017 was pulled from the appropriations bill by Paul Ryan in the middle of the night for no reason. So she lost, even though she won. But The things that Barbara Lee has done, that is 16 years of work to get to a point where members of both parties agreed with her that that policy had to go for a variety of reasons. She's a person who started fighting for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, which, you know, bars the use of federal insurance funds to pay for abortion, effectively making abortion inaccessible to poor women. Barbara Lee started fighting for that with a something called the Each Woman Act in 2015. And I don't think she thought there were going to be two of them who, who signed on to this thing. This thing, Barack Obama had called it a tradition, right? It was just you couldn't get rid of Hyde. Barbara Lee started fighting for it. It winds up in the primary campaign of hillary clinton she adopts opposition to Hyde, something i didn't think i'd ever hear in my lifetime and she's in finding ways because bernie sanders has to pushes her left and she has to find places where she can get out on an issue that is very progressive and she goes to the opposition of Hyde, which is also morally correct barbara lee winds up on the platform committee opposition to Hyde winds up in the democratic party platform in 2016 hillary clinton loses <laughs> she loses that's a defeat What's happened since? There are record numbers of women who are candidates for office. And I don't want it. This is not silver lining questions, right? It would have been better if Shirley Chisholm had won the presidency. <laughs> it would have been better if Barbara Lee had successfully managed to deny the authorization for the use of military force, right? These things I'm not doing, like, but the good news is. in def- But the defeats happen, and if we can't see a way to get to victory, in the wake of those defeats, then we can't see the things we should feel the most pride and joy about in our history, which is that even in the Anita Hill lost, they didn't believe her. Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court today, and he helped to decide Citizens United in the Voting Rights Act, which led to the election of Donald Trump. But in the wake of Anita Hill's loss and her horrendous treatment by the Senate Judiciary Committee... A record number of women were elected the next year, including the first ever black woman ever to be elected to the United States Senate, Carol Mosley Brown, in a seat that later would be won by Barack Obama. Dianne Feinstein, who now, for good or ill, heads up the Senate Judiciary Committee, was elected in that next year. Barbara Boxer was elected in that next year. Her seat is now filled by Kamala Harris, who's the second African-American woman ever to be elected to the U.S. Senate. Those things all came out of the same seed. There's a bifurcated result in many cases. It's not a question of a silver lining or one thing makes the other thing okay or ameliorates the damage. It's that defeat doesn't have to just be defeat. It can contain the seed of future victory.
1: And there's one other thing that I hear you saying, at least, which is part of the way that. You told me you slept two hours last night. Can you tell? But part of the way that you wake up this morning and come do this and go do whatever else you got to do today is putting yourself in the context of this larger history. So today does not feel like an isolated event and you do not feel isolated from that which came before you. Is that right?
0: That's absolutely right.
1: Hey Rebecca, thank you for doing this.
0: It's been so fun. <laughs> I think we've really entertained the people
1: today. <laughs> Listen, you and I scheduled this to do it today uh, a while ago. Yeah. Um, and it's funny to hear you say that thing about how you kept thinking that like the book had to come out. hmm I don't know. There's something to uh, something to the fact that you and I've been trying to have this conversation for a year and it happened today.
0: And here we are today. Happy day
1: can't end it on you saying happy day
0: here's you know i mean stay mad
1: thanks for listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff our editor is janelle peiffer and our intern is tyler mccloskey our sponsors every week mailchimp Great people at MailChimp. If you want to start an email newsletter, use MailChimp and uh, Pitt Writers, the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks to them, and thanks most of all to Rebecca Traester. Her new book is Good and Mad. We'll see you next week. Hey, one more thank you to our uh, sponsors for making today's show possible. Skagen, beautiful watch I'm currently wearing on my wrist, minimalist design, but yet it's a smart watch. What else could you want? Go to Skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com, and sign up for your emails. You get a discount on your first purchase. And also, Park Row Books, publisher of Under My Skin by New York Times bestselling author Lisa Unger. Under My Skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer... Here's a very short version of the story. Poppy is determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death, but can she handle the truth about what really happened? Listen to the audiobook for Under My Skin today.